Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Hey, Ben, it's Aaron. Hey, Aaron, it's Ben. So, Ben, how long have you been covering NASCAR? A lifetime. How fitting, then, that we're the hosts of the A Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. A Lifetime in NASCAR highlights NASCAR's illustrious history with analysis and anecdotes from a couple of NASCAR historians, namely myself, Aaron Burns, and my buddy Ben White, who's followed the sport since Richard Petty was not sponsored by SCP. We're going to discuss contemporary NASCAR topics and everything we've seen and heard through the years. You're going to learn about where the sport has been, where it will go, and the inside scoop on some of the craziest stories you'll ever hear. Ben, we're getting rolling here. Everybody's been talking about dirt racing. It's the most recent race on the schedule since we had a a week off for the Easter Bunny 500. Um, You almost covered the dirt race um <laughs> would that have been the first race that you covered had it not gotten rained out um, that was on dirt in the cup series yeah. i guess it would have been right yeah it would have been yeah when they were running dirt uh, in 1970 september of 70 was the last time that they ran a race on dirt and it came at raleigh fairgrounds and then i got into it quite honestly about when i was 11 years old in 1972 so that that was the first time i had seen uh, a, a Cup Series race. I started to say live. I really didn't see it live, as you alluded to. Just luck of the draw. I went to uh, cover the race on Sunday. Uh, got to Bristol. They weren't going to open the press box till one anyway, and so I said, "Well, I'll just be bop up there." It's about a three and a half hour ride. I got there right at noon, and I got there probably long enough to get out of my truck and grab my computer bag only to find out that they called the race off about two minutes before I got there. So I just got back in my truck and drove three and a half hours back to Salisbury. So it's just the way it works out. You know, uh, they couldn't run on the track. It, there was torrential rains in that area. There was flooding. I think they said they had something like four, four and a half, five inches. Oh, of it was, rain. Yeah, it was crazy. Something like that. Yeah. So no worries. It was just a practice run to see if I could make it to Bristol and back. <laughs> they just didn't want you to get rusty, man. That's all I, it was. I guess it was. I don't know. That, but anyway, I, I did not go back on Sunday or Monday, excuse me, because I had some things going on here at home on Monday. But I did watch the race and covered it pretty much from home. And it was interesting. I mean, there were, you know, we, it was, a long time, I think 51 years since NASCAR had, had tried to do yeah, anything on dirt. That's right. Yeah, it's been more than half a century. That's crazy. Yeah, and there was just challenges. That And believe me, you know, every time you think back to Texas, you think back to uh, New Hampshire, you think about, I mean, any of these racetracks that for the first time, you're going to have challenges, whether it be parking, seating, um, 
whatever the case. Matter of fact, I just wrote a piece for Speed Sport magazine on the first uh, Coca-Cola 600, World 600 then. or Actually, the story was how, uh, why did they go to 600 miles instead of 500? And you even go back to that race. And again, they had challenges because that was the first time they ran in 1960 running the World 600. So anytime you do something new, you're going to run across things like that. But they've already announced 2022. They're going to do it again. And they've learned a lot of things. And so, hey, it could be, I, I think it's going to be a great race uh, next time out. There, There's some concerns about the next gen car or how it's going to do on dirt, but they'll work all that out as well. Yeah, absolutely. And honestly, you know, kind of cool fact, the last time the Cup Series raced on dirt before that, Richard Petty won, 1970. Uh, not surprising. I think it was, was it, it was 1970, wouldn't it? I believe it was. Yes. Um, and then this time around, the 43 car got a top 10 finish. So something about that, that light blue 43 car and racing on dirt. But, you know, yeah, we took half a century off from the Cup Series racing on dirt, but it, it's got a a pretty illustrious history. And, and Ben, I think for all the people who, you know, I don't want to say denigrate, but they kind of, uh, they, they downplay the accomplishments of drivers from the 1960s and seventies, because some people might say, you know, Oh, well they were only racing four or five legitimate cars at most. Well, I don't believe that, but to add on to that point, it takes a lot of skill for a driver to be able to compete on the half mile, you know, and third mile dirt bull rings, as well as winning at the bigger tracks like Charlotte and Atlanta and Darlington and still racing at Daytona and Talladega too. I mean, you want to talk about a wild schedule that really made, made oval racers, you know, have to learn how to drive a a car differently. That's what it was like in the late 1960s. I mean, these guys had to compete on different types of racetracks had to compete on different types of surfaces. And I think bringing that back in the Cup Series is a pretty neat thing. It yep. it adds a new wrinkle to it, and certainly we've got a lot of road courses now too. But um, you know, speaking of dirt, you know, there, there's been a lot of cool races. There's been a lot of cool moments in NASCAR's history on dirt. Not the least of which, of course, is you know the first races they ever ran were on dirt, um, and one of them was at the Charlotte Speedway in Charlotte, North Carolina, and that is not Charlotte Motor Speedway. There was a little little bullring called Charlotte Speedway which uh, no longer exists. And while I don't exactly know the land on which that sits, Ben, I have to assume that a strip mall and a Starbucks is probably very close by. Yeah, I think so. And I think if I'm not telling it incorrectly, it was somewhere around Wilkerson Boulevard in Charlotte in that area. And you're right. It wasn't anything like the Charlotte Motor Speedway. It was, uh, I want to say, three-quarter mile dirt. Uh, It was, uh, if you can imagine in your mind, of course, taking a bulldozer and, and making an oval, uh, but then you have the the wooden fencing and the and the makeshift grandstand area, if you will, and maybe some makeshift hot dog stands and such, and uh, it, it just put together like that. And and as the story goes, uh, the gentleman by the name of I believe it was Ken Roper, Jim Roper. Uh, okay, and sorry, I just brainstormed here for a second, but uh, yeah, he came from Kansas driving a Lincoln and entered it in the race and uh, ended up winning the race. And the second place driver actually took the checkered flag, but he had some leaf springs on the back of his car and that was illegal at the time. And so he uh, ended up winning the race and got the trophy and the money and went back to Kansas. <laughs> hey, that's not, not, not a bad deal. My man won $2,000 for that race. What's funny is, uh, 20th place, Otis Martin. This was the first, by the way, this wasn't just the first race at Charlotte Speedway. 
in NASCAR. It was the first race in NASCAR period, strictly stock. It was June 19th, 1949, so it's been a minute. 20th place finish, Otis Martin, driving for car owner Pee Wee Martin. He went 25 bucks. So wow. a whole lot's changed, but, you know, that uh, that's not a lot. I'm not sure what that would have covered. P, uh, so his man, his man Pee Wee, uh, Pee Wee Martin's man, finished 20th. Lee Petty, as it was, finished 17th, crashed out. He also got his 25 bucks. If you look at racing reference, uh, there's no money earned past 20th place. So either you just got nothing or you got less than $25. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, yeah. to be honest with you, I'd rather just not even know if I got yeah. less than that. For, I mean, like, so you know how, okay, so Junior Johnson used to have this saying that when asked about his driving style, he said, I'd rather run up front and blow up or wreck it than stroke it and finish in the money. And what he means by that is, or what he meant by that is, he would rather lead 80 laps and, and blow an engine on lap 81 than take care of his equipment and finish sixth and, and make some money. That was his approach in the 1960s. It was very successful, obviously, when he was a driver. Um, but yeah, so I guess these guys didn't even make any money when uh, when they finished the race if they didn't get a top 20. There's 33 cars in this race. Like you said, Ben, it was a three-quarter mile racetrack, Charlotte Speedway, dirt track. Um and the winner got two grand, so you know, yeah, not not too bad. That's actually, I mean, that that's that's a pretty nice payday even for then, right? Right. Oh yeah, for sure. And 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 the second place driver, uh, Glenn Dunaway, was the uh, driver that finished second. He was driving a forty-seven Ford that day, and and of course, I mean, he was definitely out of the money because he he got disqualified. But you know, there's a story Richard Petty has told me, and I I still laugh about this. But he went to. Um, Lee Petty went to his wife and said, Richard's mother, and said, hey, I'm going to take the family car, and we're going to race the thing at Charlotte, and I promise nothing will happen to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, most times you know how those stories end up. He ended up flipping the car, and they it was bad, so badly beat up that they ended up having to thumb a ride back to Greensboro, back to Randleman, because they couldn't drive the car. And back in those days, what they would do, he's even told me, he said well, the first race we went to there – we stopped at a, a gas station, filling station then, and, you know, taped up the headlights, checked the oil, checked the water, you know, check, put some better, a little bit better tires on it for racing. I mean, that's how they did it back then. And, and a lot of times what they would do is uh, you might have practice sessions and they, they really wouldn't know what number they were going to run. So yeah. they would do practice. I've seen film footage of uh, Darlington Raceway and some cars that had no numbers on them. And then when they get in the garage and ask her and say, okay, you're number 22 and you're number 25 and you're number 73, whatever. And they'd put it on there with like a white shoe polish is how they used to do it. And so this car that Lee Petty was going to drive, I believe was an Oldsmobile that day. Um, he wrecked the car and they had no way to get home so they had to get somebody to take them back to randleman and it's just amazing how so much has changed from that obviously for that first race but you got to understand there were no real race cars back then we've talked about this on previous shows yeah where you would strap the doors take a belt like a man's a men's belt and strap the doors shut and you would you know, just very minor little things that you could do to the car. And the rule book wasn't a book. It was a half page. And, of course, we've come a long way in, what, 70 years. But Now it's three-quarters of a page. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, but I mean, I'm just saying it was just, it was so, I, can you imagine having that conversation when you walk through the, the back door into the kitchen and say, well, honey, I got something, good news and bad news. <laughs> okay, so here I got two questions from that. First of all, yeah. how cool would it be if the cup drivers now had to run the 600 and then drive what they raced home? Um, yeah. I think the advantage that you got now, obviously, is the cars are much more, um, you know, they're, they're, they're not bulletproof by any stretch, but they're far, far more reliable than they were even 10, 15 years ago. But it'd be kind of cool if you had to see like Ricky Stenhouse Jr. driving this car with a bashed in fender, you know, down, uh, down the interstate to, to Iredell County, uh, which I think he lives in Iredell County. I'm not sure. In Lake Norman area, I, I would assume, but that'd be pretty neat. Um, and the, the second question just slipped off my mind. If I remember it, I'll, well, I'll, I'll follow okay. up with you. All right. Well, here, while you're thinking about that, Lee Petty actually finished 17th mm-hmm. in that race. Uh, and he did. He was one of the fortunate few that did take $25 home with him. But he was driving a, a uh, 48 Buick and ran, I believe, 105 laps of the race. But he crashed and flipped it and couldn't even drive the thing home and had to go have that really hard conversation. I don't think I'd want that conversation with my wife to say, hey, honey, guess what? I just wrecked your car on a racetrack. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not interested in that conversation. Not at all. And so uh, interesting fact about this discussion that we're having, Ben. So um, if you won the first cup race ever in 1949, you got two grand. Uh, mm-hmm. Not a terrible payday, but... In purchasing power today, that's about twenty two thousand dollars. That's pretty good. So it's not bad, but I mean that uh I have a feeling NASCAR does not publish the posted earnings anymore. I think they stopped around two thousand fifteen. I, I have so. a sneaking suspicion it is more than twenty two thousand dollars if you win a race now. Um but okay, so what I was gonna ask you earlier, Ben, mm-hmm. uh going back to the nineteen forties and and racing on dirt, could you imagine uh going to one of these races as a fan and how rudimentary it was, you know, it wasn't just that the drivers and the, the crews were winging it, man. Like there were, there weren't even walls. It's parts of some of the racetracks. Oh, absolutely. That's true. And, and that was part of the maneuvering strategy was to not only race the, the other cars that were three wide or four wide in that turn, but you needed to make it through the turn. And, you know, Darlington, uh, when it was built in 1950, it quickly gained a reputation of of tearing up the right rear quarter panels on the cars. Of course, it had a guardrail around it. Mm-hmm. And uh, many drivers, Bobby Allison, Richard Petty, Cale, Yarborough, all of them told me, if you didn't scrape the back end of the car going into turn three, you weren't doing it right. And <laughs> that's so, getting air on yeah. the spooler that's not there. Right. And so that was just the, that was just the way it was. And, and Darlington was a mile and a quarter 1.25 to start it ended up being expanded and worked on to 1.366 and that particular track was shaped like an egg because the guy who gave the land away for it said you got to save my minnow pond in this corner so you gotta you can't destroy my minnow pond so what was once turns one and two which is now three and four was shaped that way because uh, you know, that was, they had to save the pond. So when you go back to dirt track racing, when, and a lot of these tracks back in the very early times, 
uh, someone would, I start to say some would scrape them out. Sometimes they weren't scraped out. They were yeah. raced upon, go around that oak tree and come back to this oak tree. I mean, it was like driving around in a field or a parking lot. You just had right. like a groove that was made by the cars. Exactly. And there was a, there was a track in Lakewood called Lakewood Speedway down in Atlanta, who, which is right in the middle of Atlanta now. And uh, there's some of the bleachers are still there, but they had trees and such i mean it was a mile racetrack but it, they had trees in there and i mean can you imagine an infield with trees in the middle but that, that's the way it was and that's how it got its shape as they say go so far and you see where that poplar tree is down there turn to the left and that's what we're going to call turns one and two those well, are the original that, scoring pylons right ben they just hung up a number in the tree that's how you knew he was leading yeah, or exactly, you know they could have yeah. they sponsors too you know you could have had um, you could have had a Coca-Cola sign hanging in the tree. You know, that, that's just, that's 1940s marketing. Right. Well, see, a lot of times what would happen, so Aaron, is the folks who either didn't have the money or didn't want to spend the money, they would find that popular tree or oak tree or whatever and climb the tree and, and watch from outside the racetrack if they can get a limb strong enough and high enough. A lot of that went on back then, too. So, yeah, you're talking pretty primitive, but... All this whole thing started from, uh, you know, one guy saying, hey, my Buick can beat your Ford. And that Ford, well, my Ford can beat your Dodge. And all right, we'll go down so far and we're going to turn, come back this way after you get around this particular tree or whatever. And that's how these racetracks, these little bull rings started. And then as time went on, people would come to these racetracks. Well, I need somewhere to sit. So they'd start building grandstands. And then they that's how some of these, these really remarkable racetracks came into fruition because of a dare from one moonshiner to the other moonshiner. I know I can outdrive you. Well, let's prove it. So that those stories are very true. That's pretty crazy. Another couple interesting things about early days in NASCAR. We've touched on dirt a lot, but Darlington. So the first time they ran the Southern 500, it was on a Monday. The reason it's known as the Labor Day Classics, not because it was run on Labor Day weekend. It's because it was raced on Labor Day because in those times in the early 50s, a lot of places you weren't allowed to compete in any, you know, have any sporting of any competition on Sunday. It was a sacred right. day of rest, and you didn't, you just didn't do that. They didn't let you. Um, and for the longest time, I don't think most people even considered the thought. So they always ran it on a Monday. Another cool thing I always thought was neat about Darlington, Ben, is the fact that when they built the racetrack, uh, people, when they were getting on the track, the drivers thought that the fast way around was the apron and that the banking was just like, you know, if you if you got loose or something, you, it would catch you. And then whoever it was was the first guy. I was like, well, I'm gonna go out there. I mean, talk about changing the game. Oh yeah, for sure. And and you know, Darlington has always, always, always had this reputation of being able to drive 399 laps around the place and you're fine. Yeah. And then that 400th lap just reaching out and grabbing you and you're sideways or going backward and you don't know what happened. And I remember distinctly, I believe it was 85, where uh, Dale Earnhardt was way out front in a yeah. RCR number three Chevrolet. And all of a sudden he's in the wall. And it's like Earnhardt in the wall. Well, that's the way Darlington was. And and what made that so difficult was, again, the the track layout. It was, it was very much like an egg or egg-shaped. Mm -hmm. And you could either set up for terms one and two or three and four, but you can't have them all. So it was a narrow, even more narrow than it is now, if you can imagine that originally. And uh, so it's just an extremely tough racetrack. But I, I want to share a quick story that 
the late Junie Donlevy told me. Junie Donlevy was a longtime team owner in NASCAR, mm-hmm. Southern Virginia gentleman, just the neatest guy you could possibly meet in your life. And I'm so sorry we've lost him now, but he fielded cars from 1950, which was the first Darlington Southern 500, up into the mid-2000s, I believe, and before his team ended and, and shut down. But the first uh, Southern 500, 1950, he's running a Ford, and he his car is out there, and they keep burning up tires, and his driver keeps saying, well, you know, I, I need tires, I need tires. So what they would do, they it was so treacherous, they ran out of tires, so they would go out in the infield, and they would take tires off of passenger cars that were just fans' cars, and they'd jack them up and put them they put uh, cinder blocks under them and, and used their tires. Well, hey man, they had it. They had run what you brung, and they had run what somebody yeah, else brung too. Exactly, yeah. So what happened was this guy comes to his car to you know take a nap or get something or whatever, and he catches them taking the tires off his car. And they're like, "Listen, we'll pay you for the tires. We don't mean to upset you." He's like, "No, no, you can have my tires. I just want to see them race on the racetrack." And said, <laughs> "All right, well, we'll get you a pit pass." And we'll let you come and be in our pits. <laughs> it's a true story. And the guy's like just happy as a clam because he could watch his wheels and his tires run on this race car. Back in those days, the cars uh, were what you would buy off the showroom floor yeah. or the dealership. And then you, uh, you had, like I said, you had a few minor adjustments to them or a few things you had to do for safety, like reinforce right front and and strap the the door shut things like that but that's about it and so you know that's that's how the racing went on as drivers unfortunately were hurt or lost their lives in cars then they started working really hard on the safety aspects of the of getting them to what they are today which are ultra safe yeah but yeah it's just it all started and that's what's so cool about stock car racing it really did start from just bare bones. Uh, let's just see if your car's faster than my car, and it's it's been elevated from that for like say seventy some years. Yeah, and, and the thing that always gets me, and I've, I've probably touched on this before because I, I, I was recently watching the Formula One documentary, and the the safety aspect is uh, similar to NASCAR, and that until the mid nineteen sixties or so, even in the late sixties, drivers didn't wear a seatbelt. Because they were, they felt like in an open wheel car that it was safer for them if they were thrown from the car than if they were trapped in it and it caught on fire, which is just absolutely astounding to me. But uh, you know, it was the same even in closed cockpit NASCAR cars. Uh, guys didn't wear a seatbelt, which like <laughs> I just I I will never understand that. Like if I if I went back in those days, Ben, and I'm driving my Studebaker or whatever on the beach Daytona, I would be like, hey. Why do I not have a seatbelt? I mean, because it, like, it wasn't just that. Like, you know, if you race on Daytona Beach or a dirt track, it would throw you around. Like when you're trying to sling the car around, like, wouldn't it be nice to be like kind of set in place in the car? It just that, 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 that's always stuck, stuck out to me as being mm-hmm. so strange. But oh, yeah. speaking well, of Darlington, yeah. um, the, the driver of the week this week, a guy that we have to talk about, it's episode 14. Uh, he never won a points race in the Cup Series at Darlington, which is kind of strange. Uh, for all of his success, three Cup Series championships, numerous wins. Um, I think what will go down forever as the best uh, iteration of NASCAR's playoffs ever, which he won in 2011, is Tony Stewart. Yes, Stewart uh, 
for all his success in the Cup Series, Ben, he never won a race at Darlington, um, which illustrates, one, how hard it is to win, and two, uh, that he was going through the era of Jeff Gordon and Jimmy Johnson when some of these guys didn't end up winning races at a certain track because they were winning at them everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, fitting that we, we talk about Tony Stewart in this episode, not just because it's episode 14, Ben, but also because we're talking about these guys from the old days, and I don't know of anybody in the last 20 years who you could put in a cup race in the 1960s and he would fit right in better than Tony Stewart. Oh, yeah, I totally agree. And I think Tony had the ability or from very early on to adapt to whatever he was in driving and very much like a Bobby Allison type. Just if it's got four wheels and a steering wheel, I can drive it. And that's very much been the case with Tony. No, he didn't win a Daytona 500. He didn't win at Darlington. But he did win at the Brickyard, and he did mm-hmm. win many other races all around the country. And, you know, some drivers just really adapted well to particular racetracks, and some of them, they just couldn't buy a win, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I go back to Bobby Allison one more time. You know, at Martinsville, he was, you know, right in the front, five laps to go so many times, or ten laps to go, just about ready to win a race, and his brakes or something would go out, something would happen. And it's the same probably with Tony in some of those respects It's because whatever the circumstance was, it just, it just wasn't in the cards for him to win at places like Darlington and Daytona. But, you know, I tell you what, he, I mean, talk about a guy who could be great everywhere. He's, he was a IndyCar champion, mm-hmm. uh, sprint car champ many times over, got into stock cars and was very successful. And now he's a very successful team owner. So, uh, Tony's very unique, and and you and I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying this now, that now he seems like he is just at peace and having fun, but when he was behind the wheel of a race car, he was all business, and you saw some of that explode out of the race car when he got upset with other drivers, or media, uh, or media. Yeah, <laughs> I was I was the victim of that a couple of times. Were where you? I ask a very legitimate question. Yeah, and I just get ripped apart, and that was. That was Tony. But yeah. I, I distinctly remember one time at Martinsville when he got upset with the late Kenny Irwin and and waited on him standing in the middle of the track and then reached in to try to punch him through the open window on the passenger side. And he almost caught his helmet, too, if I recall yeah. correctly. He almost made contact, which is uh, – that's an achievement. Yeah, I mean – and I'm sure that NASCAR was holding their breath. I mean, that could have gone bad really sure. easily. And uh, but yeah, Tony didn't didn't back down. And you know, and I say this respectfully, AJ Foyt was and is Tony's greatest hero. And Tony uh, AJ was very much the same way. Take no prisoners. Uh, Going to win this race, whatever it takes, that type of thing. And so Tony, I guess, grew up idolizing AJ Foyt, and their their personalities are very much alike, and they're very close friends today. So, great driver though, he's done a lot in the sport and done a lot for the sport as well. Yeah, so I've been very fortunate, and maybe it's because we're both left-handed. So we we had the we had this bond that we didn't know about. I didn't even know he was left-handed till very late in his career. But I never I never got an, a negative uh, reaction from talking to Tony Stewart. As a member of the media. Now, I didn't do it nearly as much as you did, Ben. Um, but in the times that I talked to him, and this is the thing I got to really credit Tony Stewart about. He, and I'm sure you can back this up, you had to do your research with Stewart. Like, if you're yeah. going to talk to Tony Stewart, don't come to him with a passive question. Don't come to him with a question that somebody else has probably already asked. Don't come to him with a question that he thinks somebody else will ask him after you ask it. 
he, he if you do your research and you come up with something interesting just like every race car he touched that microphone will turn to gold and the best example to me 2016 he was doing a teleconference he announced Stuart Haas Racing was going to go to Ford's which was crazy at the time because I mean Tony Stewart's Chevy guy of course mm-hmm. and so they announced they're going to Ford's I at the time I was with Speed Sport and I discovered at some time before then that Stewart had won some midget races and had been very successful driving for a guy named Steve Lewis and he was driving Ford's so everybody is talking to Tony in this this teleconference about you know what, what does this mean to the team um, you got no history with Ford so I hop in like halfway through and I'm like Tony you actually do have history with Fords. You've, you've raced uh, cars for Steve Lewis before. What do you remember about that experience? And, um, and I asked him something else, some throwaway question. And he starts talking about Steve Lewis. He's like, you know, I appreciate you reminding me that. You know, he's, he gives this really well thought out answer about how cool it was. And he kind of stops halfway through and he's like, what was your other question? You, I forgot, man. I'm sorry. You got me thinking about dirt racing. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, he's, he's, you know, he's very good about that if you ask him a well thought out question. Um, but like Ryan Newman, who I have caught the bad end of the stick on on one occasion, um, if you come to them with a question and you just phrase it, you just use a word they might not like, even though it's a legitimate question, they will tan your hide. And, and mm-hmm. I'm sure you've had that experience, Ben, like you said with Stuart. I have with Newman before. If you just use a phrase that they may not think is applicable to what you're talking about, mm, they're, they're going to get you on it. But, um, yeah. you know... And that made Stewart, I think that not terribly different from Dale Earnhardt. I never interviewed Dale Earnhardt, Ben, but I have to think that if you ask Dale a question and you use a phrase that he didn't like or he didn't agree with, um, he was going to let you know about it. And mm-hmm. and that's the way Stewart was. Um, I have heard people in the NASCAR industry say so much that I haven't seen a driver like Dale Earnhardt at all other than Tony Stewart. Mm-hmm. And I have heard that before. And, and, and I think – especially when it comes to certainly the driving skill, the versatility behind the wheel, but also the fact that if you come to them with good questions as a member of the media, they're, they're generally going to be pretty good to you. But yeah, if I you agree. are slipping just a little bit, man, if you just say the wrong word, they're going to get you. Yeah, I agree with that. And, you know, I've, I have been on both sides of the of the fence with Tony. Uh, we were at Sonoma, California back in the mid-2000s, and I – I ask a legitimate question. I think comparing some of his driving skills, maybe with Kelly Yarborough, and for whatever reason, you know, he didn't like that too much. And I walked <laughs> away saying, well, good grief. I mean, I didn't say anything ugly to him. Yeah. I just, I thought it was a legit question. Sure. He didn't think so for whatever reason. And then, but, but to be fair to Tony, there's been another time that I wrote an article for the Indianapolis Motor Speedway program on the Brickyard 400 and what it was like to win it the first time before he had won it the second time. Mm-hmm. And he was incredibly nice to me. And, you know, I know of sometimes that uh, another writer, close friend of mine, Kenny Bruce, told me this once. They were in Atlanta and they did an interview and he said, well, Kenny, what are you doing right now? He said, well, I need to probably go back to the media center. So well, I want to go up the street and see if I can find some CDs at Best Buy. Do you want to go with me? And <laughs> uh, yeah. Who, <laughs> I yeah. How many people would do that now? With him. That and never I happened Kenny, now. I, can't, I think Kenny said, well, Tony, I'd love to, but I really got to go back and work on the story I just talked to you about. So I had a great uh, an interview with him for the Brickyard. Kenny had, you know, so I think what it is is it just depends on on what he's got on his mind and sure. 
and how well he's performed this week or whatever. And but now again, all the pressure that these drivers are under to try to win and that plays into it. And plus the competitive side of Tony and so many other drivers. I mean, they're so, so focused. I even had Davey Allison tell me once, he said it in a very polite way. I was asking him a question at Charlotte Motor Speedway and he was sitting in a director's chair in the back of the truck. And he said, Ben, I got a a favor to ask. And I said, sure. He said, I am really, really, really thinking about how to get this car to work through turns one and two. Can, Can you come back in 30 minutes? Could we talk? And he was very polite about it. I said, absolutely, no problem at all. So the focus that these guys have when they're at the racetrack is totally different from being, obviously, on ski-doos or whatever at at Lake Norman. I mean, so, I mean, Tony's human, and he's had good days, bad days, like we all have. But I've I've been on both sides of that. Tony, I've always enjoyed talking to Tony unless he's yelling at me that I don't like. And I don't take pleasure. I'm not much for Scott and Freud. I don't take pleasure in um, him, you know, watching him rip somebody. But I will say at Media Tour one year, a reporter came over. You know, okay, so Media Tour, mid-2010s, um, everybody, you know, the, the drivers show up by team. So they all have their, their designated area and they're in director's chairs. And so you ask them questions. You can kind of walk up and, you know, it's like a car wash basically. So they – this guy walks up and I had been there for several minutes, uh, talking to Tony, um, myself and somebody else, because I was doing a story on Tony's sprint cars for speed sport. And, uh, somebody had asked Tony a question about Indianapolis and it had been a few minutes. And this other guy walks up and he asks Tony the same question and he mm-hmm. just looks at him and, and this guy had no idea. All right. He, had, no. he did not know. So I get it. But Tony looks at him and he's like, I already answered that question. So if you want to know, uh, why don't you just take the transcript from this and then you already know. I'm not answering. I'm not answering the same question twice. If you got anything else, you can ask it. And then the guy just kind of walked away. And you know, it's that's the luck of the draw with with smoke. Um, but I had to admit it was kind of funny because you know the guy didn't know. Super unfortunate for him. Um, but you just see this like look in Stewart's eye and you're like, Oh God, this thing going to be good. And <laughs> yeah. you can just tell before, before he says anything, because a lot of times with Stewart, and I, I noticed this in press conferences too, if he gives you that pause. So like if, if Ben, if you ask me, Aaron, uh, what would you think about running the Indianapolis 500 again? And I instantly start talking. Well, all right. But if I pull a Tony Stewart, it's, well Ben and you just know you just know instantly All right, I'm about to get eviscerated and that's the way he always was but we love him for it Um, there is nobody in NASCAR like him at all and uh, you know his his personality and the way that he is made him made him so many fans and it's also you know not unlike football players people who have to almost make themselves angry to perform at a high level I think he shared a little bit of that tenacity in the sense that if you pissed him off on the racetrack, you know, don't just be worried about him coming back and dumping you because that's probably going to happen. But also be worried about him winning the next two races, because if you got his gumption up a little bit, man, it was especially when he was driving the uh, little Home Depot car for for Joe Gibbs. It was not a good sight for the rest of, of NASCAR when Tony Stewart got in the car and he was not in a good mood because he was going to go out and he was going to probably win a race. And he did that so many times. Um, not unlike, as we said, another driver of the 14 car, his hero, AJ Foyt, who also had quite a bit of success in NASCAR, 
Um, of course, his focus was largely with Indy cars, and as we got into the 1980s with sports cars, but AJ was no slouch behind the wheel of a cup car. Uh, ben, who else do you remember, if anybody, uh, who was really successful driving that number 14? Well, there, there are a couple that come to mind. The first time that the number 14 went to victory lane in NASCAR competition, August 22nd, 1954. And it's the name of a guy who just, he's probably still racing. And I think he's just turned 90. Maybe he's 91. Herschel McGriff. Yeah. Herschel McGriff was in the 1950 Southern 500. And the, the, so, I mean, that, so he started that his NASCAR career in 1950. And, and I'm seriously, I mean, if he's, he probably has raced something recently, okay? Maybe not, obviously, the Cup Series, but, I mean, like some short track stuff. I think he ran what was a K&N race a few years ago, just where so. he could say that he raced in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, and the 2010s in a NASCAR mm-hmm. National Series. Yeah, and and he he's just one of those unstoppable types, and that particular victory came at Bay Meadows Racetrack. He was driving an Oldsmobile. Bay Meadows is in San Mateo, California, and again that came on August twenty second, nineteen fifty four. Was it a so, dirt track? Uh, probably. Yeah, it was because it was actually a horse track, and uh, they ran a few stock car races there, but predominantly it was horse racing there at that track. But it's I hope they cleaned up after the horses. <laughs> Well, I don't know. That might have helped him get through the turns a little bit better. Yeah, I uh, but, but I digress. Uh, Go as ahead. far as the number 14, though, Tony, we're talking about him. He has the most wins in the number 14 car with 16, and he's followed by a gentleman by the name of Fonty Flock who had 14 wins in the yep. number 14. And then you have uh, Clint Boyer has two. You had Jim Pascal with seven. Herschel McGriff, as we talked about, with four. And Bobby Allison has one. So – yeah, the 14 is just uh, a number that's uh, – and Cuckoo Marlin, by the way, father of Sterling Marlin, mm-hmm. did win one time in the number 14. It was a 125-mile qualifying event, I believe, in 1973. But that's when they weren't counting those races as official victories. They, yeah. they were for from like uh, 1959 to about 69 or 70, 71 – and then when Winston RJR came into the picture, they stopped counting those 125s and 150s as, as official victories. But uh, so so Cuckoo te- technically has a victory there. And by the way, the name Cuckoo comes from the fact he he couldn't uh, he couldn't say his real name, which was Clifton. So uh, when he was a little boy, so he started calling himself Cuckoo, and it stuck. So there you go. <laughs> There's a little bit of track fact for you. Hopefully, he wasn't crazy. No, he wasn't. He's a great guy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> great guy. Absolutely. A um, couple other guys who drove the fourteen didn't win. Uh, Terry Labonte drove the fourteen car, the Kellogg's fourteen car um, for Billy Hagen. I remember he drove at ninety three. Um, didn't win. Had a really cool paint scheme. It was black and white with a red stripe on the back. Didn't win a race that year. Ben, to me as a kid, I think that the fourteen. I think of the Kanawha Insurance car. It was a red and white car the next year that John Andretti drove when he was the first driver to attempt the Indianapolis 500 Coca-Cola 600 double. Uh, So a neat little tidbit of history there um, to add on to the history of the 14 car in the Cup Series, which is now being driven by Chase Briscoe. I think a lot of Chase, and hopefully he'll do some pretty good things in the future. Um, Shifting gears for a second, Ben. Um, I, you have thrown some, some interesting, uh, trivia my way. I'm going to give you a track fact, as you like to say that I don't think, you know, okay. 
And what that is is I have a skill which is completely useless, um, but it has <laughs> been <we> proven. <laughs> but it has been proven. I have before and can still today quote Days of Thunder start to finish every line by every person. Uh, All right, that's impressive. Not a I, single mistake. I can't do that. Well, so that's my favorite movie, and I watch on average. I watch at least one scene from Days of Thunder probably once a month, and have for the last since I was born, mm-hmm. um, or since 1990 at least. So, um, and it's always been my favorite movie. Um, I had the cold trickle fire suit um, that my mom sewed the Winston Cup patches on and everything. Um, in 1990, that was my Halloween costume for oh, cool. Halloween 1990. Um, it, it's, it has a very, very special place, and it's a part of my identity. Um, and I've always quoted that freaking movie, even since I was a little kid. Um, but a few years ago, one of my best friends, Willie, uh, I had mentioned to him that I thought I could do this way of watching it, and I did. I just quoted the whole movie, start to finish. Um, mm. And it wasn't even like it, it, there was no difficulty. It was just natural. I mean, it was from the moment that... Tim Dalen gets out and says, I see you're enjoying a good life, Harry, all the way to the end. We got it on lock here. Um, but, you know, Ben, you were covering the sport when Days of Thunder came out, and there has been um, an influx of documentaries, of specials, of magazine stories, online stories about the movie Days of Thunder. Uh, two drivers have driven throwback schemes in the last decade. Kurt Busch, the Xfinity race at Daytona, drove the City Chevrolet car in 2013 in July, and then William Byron won the pole for the Southern 500 a couple of years ago, driving the number 24 City Chevrolet car. Um, countless other throwback schemes. Um, you know, it, it the the mellow yellow car that, that Tom Cruise's character, Cole Trickle, drove became Kyle Petty's uh, paint scheme from 1991 through 94. So it had a major ripple effect in the artistic world of NASCAR. But I think in the world of pop culture, it, the movie came about at the time when NASCAR was transitioning from being this regional curiosity to the national phenomenon that it is now. Um, that said, Ben, you were covering the sport then. What was the pulse of the garage area and of the media center like as this movie was being filmed? And keep in mind, you know, these guys were like Bobby Hamilton and Tommy Ellis and Greg Sachs. They were racing movie cars in the actual cup races. Yeah, that, and that was interesting to see that. A lot of times what would happen if you're trying to film – uh, a race ever is that of course you had the studio cars and you'd have the camera cars and such and they would do the preliminary type stuff before some of the you know bigger races in this case they actually had cars in the races which was pretty cool they had a lot of good footage there and as far as days of thunder was coming out and to, to answer your question i mean it was a lot of hype and a lot of buzz about it the fact that tom cruise was uh, starring in there and nicole kidman uh, also starring uh, with him in that, and uh, uh, you know, they had some big stars. And Robert Duvall, I got to say this, man: if you wanted to know what Harry Hyde was like, if you go back and look at Days of Thunder, Robert Duvall nailed Harry Hyde. There is yeah. that was him. I'm telling you, he he studied him, and and he just nailed Harry. Harry was cool. He was kind of a crusty old crew chief. Did some really good stuff. Didn't put up with a lot of BS from anybody. He was just that that kind of guy. Well, Robert Duvall did an awesome job, and I I think he should have gotten an Academy Award for for playing uh, you know Harry Hyde's character. And the sure. way I understand it, 
the, the movie was kind of loosely based on Tim Richmond's life a little bit. That's and, right. And, uh, and so, you know, and I'll, I'll say this, the first, I mean, the only time, first and only time I met Tom Cruise, uh, which was cool, just shook his hand, said hello to him, but he, he came to Wilkesboro and I believe it was September of 89 and he was just there kind of as a fan, as a guest of Rick Hendrick. And just, you know, a really cool guy. I mean, if you didn't know, if you were under a rock and had no idea who he was, uh, just a just super nice guy. And he just wanted to come to the racetrack, kind of see what things were, what it was all about, and and get a, a little bit better feel, education for, for NASCAR. And, you know, I mean, there's some things in the Days of Thunder movie that yeah, I'm a, a, cring, a little bit cringeworthy there. But sure. Oh, Overall, the movie I thought was was good and and has some top actors, and I think that's what made it so good. We've seen several movies come along, but they didn't have the star power that that Days of Thunder had. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, there, there's some good attributes to it. Good good things. I think it's about all perfect, and I say that with the just most incredible bias I could possibly have. But you know, one cool thing about it, the guy who played Russ Wheeler, Kerry Owis, he uh, he's British. I didn't know that for a long time, that the guy who played Russ Wheeler had a really good Southern accent, uh, is, is British, so speaks to his acting skill. Right. But yeah, yeah and, um, I'm sorry, go ahead, Ben. Oh, I was just going to, I'm sorry to interrupt you there, but I was just going to say that, you know, a lot of the things that you see in the movie really did happen. For instance, when they have the scene where they're all sitting in the pits eating ice cream and tell him not to come in because they're eating ice cream. Well, that actually happened at Pocono with Benny Parsons when Harry Hyde was his crew chief at when when Benny Parsons was driving for Rick Hendrick and they he wanted to come in for tires said nope you got to wait a couple of laps because we're eating ice cream that's a true story and then the one about how Rick Hendrick went to talk to Harry Hyde and and he was on the tractor and he was kind of looking for a way back but wasn't sure if he you know how he would fit into this yeah. what how NASCAR was going to be now. That that also did happen. So there are things in the movie that were trans, you know, transformed into the script, and that really did happen as far as you know, real life in NASCAR. Yeah, and another one is when uh, Cole Trickle and Rowdy Burns, which by the way, this is super cool. The fact that one of the characters has the same last name as me, and the other one, <laughs> his first name was what my first name was going to be if my last name wasn't Burns. My name would have been Cole. Uh, that's that? what my mom would name me. So I was going to have a tie to Days of Thunder, no matter if it was my first or last name. I'm telling um, you. But that scene of Cole and Rowdy are driving to meet their team, their their uh, team owners and the, the boss, Big John, which uh, Fred Dalton Thompson did a uh, more than passable Big Bill France, mm-hmm. um, which they just made no effort at all to hide who that was. Uh, that happened. There was a real meeting between Rick Hendrick and uh, Richard Childress and Dale Earnhardt and Jeff Bodine because they were, it was like their cars were magnetized in the doors for a, a period of more than a year. If they were just, you know, slam banging at each other, every opportunity that they got. And finally NASCAR was, they're fed up with it. And they demanded that they, uh, that they all go out to dinner together. And um, one of the big edicts from this, uh, from this lunch bin was that uh, uh, Bill France basically told him, you need NASCAR more than we need you. I can put somebody else in these cars and we'll still have a great show, but where are you going to go? And ultimately that was what got the three car and the five car to stop smashing at each other all the time. And probably it hurt too, that in the 1988 Coca-Cola 600, Ben, 
Dale Earnhardt spun out Jeff Bodine and was penalized for five laps, um, which I don't think since then there has been a rough driving penalty for that long. And honestly, you got to go quite a ways back to even think of a rough driving penalty. Um, one of the most recent ones I can think of was uh, Martinsville in 14 with uh, Brian Vickers and Casey Kane, where they were kind of doing their own little Earnhardt Bodine and uh, creating a caution every 30 laps, smashing into each other. But you don't see that very often now. And what's a bummer about Days of Thunder, it's not really a bummer about it, it's a bummer at times that you couldn't remake a Days of Thunder with the current NASCAR uh, spectrum because Cole would just have to get the free pass. And if he got more stage points, maybe he already makes the playoffs, even if Russ Wheeler wins the race. There'd be so many different things you, it would just have to be a completely different movie, but that right. one's a classic. It's my favorite NASCAR movie. Right. Another one I wanted to ask you about, and it's probably, well, it's got to be the second most popular, um, unless, you know, Talladega Nights, super popular, early 2000s, Will Ferrell, early mid-2000s. That's a cool movie, a lot of fun. I enjoyed that. saw that one in theaters. But Stroker Ace came out in the early 80s. Burt Reynolds um, and the guy who played Gomer Pyle, Ben, what's his name? Uh, Jim Neighbors. There you go. See, this is this is why we have that we have that bond. We just you know one of us backs the other up. Yeah. Uh, Stroke Race is a really fun movie. It's Dale Junior's favorite racing movie. He said many times. Uh, super entertaining. If you guys have never seen it, you ought to check out Stroker Ace. This this came out around the time you started covering the sport, Ben, and it was also the movie that got Tim Richmond interested in a Hollywood career, which unfortunately he was he was never able to uh, pursue, but. Uh, tell me your thoughts on um, on Stroker Ace. Now you got me feeling like we're Siskel and Ebert for a minute, but I, I'm, not, I'm not hating this vibe, so go ahead and tell me what you okay. think. Okay, well, here's the thing about Stroker Ace, and this is where I walked away thinking, all right, this is a little hokey here and there because there's there's the he's you know Burt Reynolds is riding a chicken egg uh, in pre-race, okay? The chicken and, pit special. Right, and flapping his wings and all that, and there was – I don't know. There's a couple of sponsor, you know, people on pit road and, and it was a little bit strange, like meaning that it was people dressed up like what, you know, whatever the sponsor was and stuff. And, and initially I walked away thinking, all right, that's a little bit far fetched. And yeah, but now keep in mind, this is early eighties. Okay. By the end of that decade, you did see a lot of that kind of stuff, you know, as far as marketing goes, like for mm -hmm. instance, there was the planters peanuts guy, who would walk around pit road dressed up like the planter's peanut. And okay. And I, every time I saw the guy, I was like, all right, this is Stroker Ace, you know, because at, do you understand what I'm saying? Back when it came out, it seemed a little bit far fetched. Yeah. As time went on, you see a lot more of the, uh, the, the pageantry of it or the, what am I trying to say? The, uh, the spectacle, you know, the, yeah. the market, that spectacle. That's the word I'm looking for. And the marketing side of it, nothing was seemed like off the table by the eight, late eighties, early nineties. You could see that kind of thing going on. Maybe that's what sparked some of the ideas to do the marketing. But uh, yeah, it was a, it was a cute little movie. I mean, it was it had big stars. Burt Reynolds was in it, and then of course we knew later that Burt uh, had his own race team with Hal Needham, who was mm -hmm. a stuntman and director in Hollywood. And that's, of course, you know, how Harry Gant got pretty much his best ride in the Cup Series. Yep. Um, so, I mean, yeah, it, it sort of spun off there uh, as far as the Hollywood influence. Uh, there was one that that you might not be familiar with, I wanted to mention, too, that was one that came out in the 60s. 
early 60s, and this is the one I watched the same way you probably would watch the Days of Thunder one, and it was one called Red Line 7000, and it was filmed in 1964. Never even heard of it. Okay, 1964-65. Uh, it had James Kahn driving Fred Lorenzen's number 28 car, okay? Mm-hmm. It was pretty cool, and, and now there's some stuff on that. It was a little bit hokey also. There was a guy in that movie who had lost his arm, in a crash and he was driving with a hook <laughs> i mean like on his head okay so okay all right that was a little bit out there but the one thing and you got to understand each one of these movies that are made about racing there's just some something that sticks out that just really just makes you want to beat your head against the wall every yeah. one of them yeah i agree and the one in, in the red line 7000 movie was that it didn't matter where they raced it didn't matter what state they were in they always ended up congregating back at the same bar <laughs> and it was so funny because so they, they just didn't change a set it was like you know they're in california or they're in north carolina they, new york they the bars always the same. go back to the same that's bar awesome and, i love that and do their dance you know the the twist and all that you know back in that era and each one of these things you have to look at like for instance ford versus ferrari that one that came yeah. out recently love okay. that movie it was an awesome, awesome movie. All right, uh, Matt Damon was in this one. I mean, if you've not seen it, it's great. Yeah, but Christian they, Bale, I love that movie for sure. When they try to pass off California Speedway for Daytona International Speedway, it just made me sick to my stomach. I, I knew like, really? that's exactly where you're going, Ben. As soon as you said Ford versus Ferrari, I knew where you were going with Auto Club yeah. Speedway. I get, I totally get that, but. They, the CGI way they did the uh, the um, the old Daytona um, press box and all, yep. I thought that was cool. They they made some efforts that legitimized it some, yes, but you can definitely tell. Um, aren't there scenes when they're doing the twenty four hours of Daytona and you can see the light blue wall in the back? That was a little cringy. I I agree. Right. I mean, here's the thing, Aaron. If you're if you're a race fan, okay, and you're going to go pay for to see this movie. That's all well and good, but I mean, if you're a race fan, I, I, I mean, I'm not a fan of the opera, okay? So most mm-hmm. likely, I'm not going to go see a movie about the opera, but okay. I would go see one about racing, whatever that form of racing would be. So that just sort of turned me off, and I hate hate to break this to you, but even in the days of Thunder, and I'm not trying to be Debbie Downer here, but <laughs> you go you go down the front stretch at Darlington, and you go through the turns at Wilkesboro, and you come out the back stretch at Atlanta, I mean that. I don't know. That that's just a little hard yeah, to call. I guess you. Yeah, I know. And, but you I'll know. say this: the one movie, though, there's been a bunch. The one movie that I really enjoyed for its total content and the way it was put together was the one, the, the Last American Hero, with Jeff Bridges, and it was yeah. his very first big role in a movie, starring role. And I think that's also probably the most natural in the yeah, sense it's that the it's most, the most real racing movie and it's right. probably one of the reasons why it didn't appeal to the masses as much because it didn't they didn't throw in a lot of things that, that there was so much attention to detail in last american hero that there wasn't room for the hollywoodization that you got in days of thunder they didn't worry they, if they went into turn one at Wilkesboro, they came out uh, and they came out turn two at Wilkesboro. when yeah there were continuity issues and Days of Thunder, or there was the, if you've ever watched a race to Auto Club Speedway, you know the 24 Hours of Daytona. That's not Daytona. 
there, there's something like that in every race movie. And and like you said, Ben, it doesn't mean that they're bad by any stretch. It's just no, you no, notice those things. And it didn't seem like, to your point, it didn't seem like to me that The Last American Hero really had much of that. And I think that's why you really like it, being a purist. I love the movie, too. I think it's fantastic. We touched on it recently with uh, Big Bill Connell having, having a role yeah. in the movie. Um, but yeah, I think one of the reasons it doesn't have that lasting power that a Days of Thunder or a Stroker Ace or a Talladega Nights has because it was focused on realism more than that spectacle. Right, I agree. And there's one more that I want to point out that I, I really liked, and I think those that are listening today would really enjoy this. It was a movie called Winning, and it was with Paul Newman in 1969. Mm-hmm. And they get into running some stock car stuff. And if you look at that, Robert Wagner is also in the movie as, a, as his counter driver throughout the movie. And they run some older Holman Moody, like late 60s, mid 60s uh, Fairlanes. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of cool to watch. And then, But the overall story is about the Indy 500 and Paul Newman in the Indy 500. And not going to spoil the movie for you if you've not seen it. But it's a great movie from the viewpoint that it's, it's I mean, uh, sure, I'm sure it's got some hype in it. But it, the overall picture, though, you don't, it doesn't have a lot of, of crazy, quirky stuff in it that would make you go, what the heck did they do that for? It's, it's <laughs> yeah. got a great, it's got a great start to finish. Uh, it's about uh, two hours that's that's another real good one if you find it online somewhere. An awesome movie. It's called Winning with Paul Newman. Okay, Ben, I got a question for you. Yes. Have you ever heard of Steve Grayson? I have to admit to you, I don't believe I have. <laughs> that's because Steve Grayson was a movie character from the film Speedway in 1968, played by a guy named uh, Elvis Presley. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, we had to touch on Speedway um, yeah. because it, you know, some of us filmed and set at Charlotte Motor Speedway. Elvis was in this movie. Nancy Sinatra is in this movie. It's rated a 5.7 out of 10 on the inter, the IMDb. Is that international movie database? I don't know what it is. Uh, internet movie, da- probably internet movie database. I don't know. Anyway, IMDb, whatever it is, gave it a 5.7 out of 10. I have not seen this entire movie before. Um, I have heard mixed reviews about it, but I do think it's super cool that Elvis did a NASCAR movie in the late 60s. Um, and, and Ben, the late 60s seemed like a time where you went from no racing movies to tons of racing movies because you also had Grand Prix, that phenomenal yeah. movie yeah. Uh, about Formula One starring, um, who, who is it? So I, 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 I name them, I remember them by people they played. Like I, I think of, all right, Grand Prix has uh, the guy from Maverick and the mom from Arrested Development. I don't remember the names as well as, as who they played, but that is a that is one of the best racing movies ever put together. Yeah, that's and, true. And, and there's a lot of great ones from the 60s. Maybe we need to give Speedway a shot. You guys probably need to give Speedway a shot too. Um, just so so cool that Elvis Presley did a NASCAR movie. It'd be like, there's not a modern day Elvis Presley, and I'm not making this comparison, Ben, but... Justin Timberlake doing a NASCAR movie would be—I would be intrigued at least. Yeah. Well, and and to help you out here a little bit, James Garner was the yes. person. Yes. James Garner, who, ran, who was uh, the lead role in that one, and 
Yeah, I mean, there's just you know, there's a lot of great uh, NASCAR movies. I think the one thing that stands out about Speedway, and I'd forgotten his name is Steve Grayson. Bobby <laughs> Allison was actually Elvis's uh, backup driver for that. So oh, really? See, yeah, when you see a lot of that uh, on track footage, mm -hmm. that was uh, he drove the six car for Cotton Owens. Uh, Elvis supposedly did. Yeah, and that was a car that that uh, bobby allison was driving that year i think 1967 so you mean so, elvis wasn't driving the car for cotton owens that's a bummer uh, no <laughs> what a bummer <laughs> yeah i'm pretty sure mr ba was uh in the behind the wheel now i'm sure they had some shots of him sitting behind the wheel and stuff like that but yeah yeah bobby was his driver for that but okay yeah i mean and, and you know what here's the thing to be honest and fair about it if you were to ask anybody if you go to an emergency room today and say hey all right, how much of this stuff is real when I go watch this show or that show on TV or this mm -hmm. movie? They would probably tell you not much. Yeah. And it's the same thing with cop shows, you know, and, and yep. they would tell you not much. So obviously they're in the business for entertainment purposes. They're in the business to sell tickets. But I'm, I'm like I'm, I'm with the Tom Hanks uh, school of thought. When he did Apollo 13, he said, I want every switch to be exactly where it would be in this capsule. I want everything to be as right on dead to money as it can be because somebody out there works for NASA and somebody out there is going to pinpoint what we do wrong. So every movie that Tom Hanks has ever done, is he's adamant about that, even walking away from movie contracts. If it's too hokey or it's just too weird, mm -hmm. he walks away. And so I admire that. If you're going to put the effort and millions of dollars into it, I just think you ought to do the best you can. So I'm still waiting for that ultimate kick butt a stock car movie that really hits the mark and we hadn't quite got there yet but i'm i'm still waiting for it all right so give me your top three favorite nascar movies first to third okay well uh first one would have to be uh, the last american hero i think that okay. one's extremely accurate second sure. i gotta go with winning with paul newman and i guess if you want to go mm, you know it's hard. Well, I started to say the Redline 7000, but that one's so hokey, I can't really I can't <laughs> go with that one. People actually, I do know this, Buddy Baker and Richard Petty and some others walked out of the theater when that was on in 1965 huh. because it was just so inaccurate. The third one for me, I mean, hmm, I... I, I guess Stroke Race would be because okay. I mean it's it, and there's another one too that it's a super super hokey okay but it was just one I kind of enjoyed there was a movie actually two of them there was a movie called Six Pack with Kenny Rogers yes yes that, that one came out and it was like and the gist of the story was that he was a race driver trying to get back into the Cup Series but somehow he had kids for a crew and Brewster Baker. Brewster Baker. That was kind of, okay, it was kind of all right. And then the, there was another one that I'm sure the Petties might cringe a little when they see it, but it was the 43 story mm -hmm. when Richard actually had an acting role in the movie. And, you know, I think Buddy Baker and Dale Inman and uh, Maurice Petty all had speaking lines in this movie. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, it was all right, but... Darren, what was his name? Darren Gavin, I think played Richard Petty. I mean, excuse me. That'd be weird. Petty. That'd be weird to see. Uh, I, yeah, I, it was, uh, it didn't win any Academy Awards. Let's put it that way. Well, hey. <laughs> but it was okay. It was okay. Right. I got you. My top three, Days of Thunder first. Mm -hmm. I got to go, um, 
I, I, I'm not going to put uh, um, Talladega Nights in the top three, but they're a, an honorable mention because it's a fun movie. It is cool. It's it, it's it captures the commercialization of mid 2000s NASCAR very well. And to me, Will Ferrell, that's one of his best movies. Honestly, I think he did a great job and it's super entertaining. It is insanely quotable. You watch that movie once and it, some of the lines just stick with you. So I think that's super fun, but doesn't quite make the cut for me. My top three days of thunder, uh, stroker ACE and last American hero for the same reasons that I listed before, just it's realism and it, it capturing the spirit of late sixties, early seventies NASCAR. Um, now if you, if, if we had to do just racing movies, period, Ben rush, the 2013 Ron Howard film mm-hmm. would have to probably be there. I love Ford versus Ferrari too. Um, so what they couldn't quite get Daytona right, but, um, I really enjoyed that movie too. It was, it was gripping and, and, you know, Grand Prix is one of my favorite movies period. So that would be up there. It would be impossible to top three with all these. I just know I'd put Days of Thunder first, but yeah, I got to go Days of Thunder, Stroker Ace, and Last American Hero. Um, but, you know, there's been so many to come out. I feel like it's about time that we have another NASCAR movie out, and I'll be interested to see, you know, what's the storyline? Are they going to get a big-name person in it? You know, it's uh, something to think about in the future. Yeah. Well, you know what, Aaron? I got one more. I just thought of it. I, we can go to another topic here. But one, another one that came out, and I believe it was 1956 or 57, it's called Thunder in Carolina. I think and I've heard of that. Yeah, and there was a movie. The The lead role was Rory Calhoun, I believe. Mm-hmm. But if you went uh, for the old schoolers, if you watched Gilligan's Island somewhere in your teens, Alan Hale Jr., uh, who played the skipper on in uh, Gilligan's Island, was the the crew chief for this. And, and the cool thing about this movie, they actually used the 1956, I think it's 56 or 57, Southern 500, and – did a lot of filming there and had some <laughs> couple of cars and that you know what that could have been a precursor to the to doing uh days of thunder i'm not sure if they actually had footage in the race or they did it prior i don't know but it was based around a driver who was trying to make a comeback and trying to help a young driver you know learn how to drive a race car but there's a lot of good footage in there and i know charlotte motor speedway has done a couple of movie nights in the past yeah. where they showed it and it's one that I would love to have a copy of, and I don't have it, but I was in a hotel room. This is one of those meaningless, useless things. I was in a hotel room in Darlington, South Carolina, back in the early 90s uh, for a race that mm-hmm. they were having at Darlington, and they showed it on uh, Turner Classic Movies, and I obviously had no way to tape it or videotape it or whatever, VHS back in those days. And I was like, man, I wish I had set my VCR you know, back in the, back in the day, yeah, uh, it's just a good movie. It's it's one that you it's entertaining and and accurate that I know of. And if you want to see the nineteen fifty six Southern five hundred, that that's a great movie to watch. Good stuff. Um, yeah, I, I kind of do want to check that out now. You've piqued my interest with the fact they might have used movie cars. Um, I think so. Yeah, I'm not sure. That's pretty cool. And cut. I had to do that. I was just curious. So um, we've finished. We've crossed the finish line. Episode fourteen. Ben, it's been a blast chatting up with you. I feel like I have to add. I have a list of movies now that I need to watch again, yeah. or in some cases for the first time. I might see that Red Line movie. I might not. Um, but 
Now you just got me wanting to, to, to jump off this podcast and watch Last American Hero. It's been a few yeah. years since I caught that one. Try, um, try Redline 7000. You'll laugh when they go back to the same bar every time, they, no matter where they race, they end up in awesome. the same bar. So All right. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it was a mobile lounge like they have in Formula One, Ben. Maybe they, they put it together at every different racetrack like Maybe they do so. with F1, the F1 <laughs> shops, man. Maybe that's what know. it was. Um, but we'll see. Um, love chatting with you guys. Yes, um, had, had a lot of fun today talking about NASCAR on dirt, NASCAR on asphalt, Tony Stewart, uh, and, and some, some, some fun stories of him with the media as well as all these, uh, Tinseltown stories and NASCAR movies. Um, we're gonna be back with episode 15 pretty quick, probably faster than cold trickle at Darlington on fresh tires. Uh, if you haven't seen days of thunder, you probably won't get that analogy, but I hope that you have, if not, go watch it as soon as we finish here. Um, but in the meantime, throw a rating our way wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear your feedback. Um, check at NPP Mag on Twitter, Pole Position Magazine. Probably going to talk a little bit about favorite NASCAR movies uh, this week coming up as well, just because um, that's a discussion I feel like it gets people, I mean, it gets their blood going, Ben. Like if I say, you know, I didn't like Last American Hero, somebody, you know, they take that, they take that offensively. And mm-hmm. I like that. I like the fact that it is a subject that is so, um, so opinionated. And, and so we'd love to hear what you guys think about that. And we'll probably touch on some some more of these movies. We didn't get a chance to really get into the the weeds on uh, on Talladega Nights, but you know we could do a whole podcast episode Ben sure. on, on on all these movies, and we kind of did today. But uh, we'll save the rest for another day. Um, once again, we appreciate you guys' feedback. Love chatting up with you guys. Um, can't wait to do it on episode fifteen. But in the meantime, for Ben White, I'm Aaron Burns. Thanks for listening to another episode of A Lifetime in NASCAR. So long, everybody. Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green.
Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at ForneyIn.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, Ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.